Hello and a warm welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, the 26th of January 2021. Mark Pender is across the pond stateside and I'm Jeremy in London. So it promises to be an interesting end to January with Joe Biden already getting a taste of what only the tiniest majority in the Senate can do to policy aspirations and the FOMC holding its first meeting of the year. We'll also get preliminary estimates of just how badly the second Covid wave hit economic growth last quarter. And on that front, GDP in the US certainly looks to have held up significantly better than it has in Europe. It's also a big week for earnings and we even have a semi-virtual Davos World Economic Forum running through Friday. So Mark, let's kick off with your side. Any chance of the FOMC putting a smile on a new president's face as it seems that Mr. Biden is <laughs> going to struggle to get his near two trillion stimulus package through Congress? <laughs> oh, it's, well, uh, well I, you know, the outlook for tomorrow's FOMC is for um, no policy uh, changes. Uh, whether they put a, um, a spin, a stimulative spin on it, uh, you would think that they would, but really the last one in December, they were more talking about what they're going to do when they begin to withdraw stimulus. They were clearing out that area um, and kind of pushing it off a bit and what which in, you know, in a, something accommodative without really um, changing any policy. But by talking about when they're going to withdraw by, you know, pushing that back, that's a positive. Uh could they do that again? I guess if, if that is, uh, you know, and I, if, if that is the, the next thing to doing something stimulative, I guess they possibly could. I don't, you know, they pushed off a rate uh, change uh, with the inflation averaging early, late, late last year. And then they put off um, um, bringing down the balance sheet by saying there's going to have to, in the last meeting, by saying there's going to have to be substantial improvement in the economy. So, and those are their two main uh, policy tools. So, I, you know, what is the outlook? I'm not sure, so sure that the next little nuance could be uh, trying to change uh, long rates, uh, trying to control that. Uh, we saw like a 20 basis point move this month in long-term U.S. rates, so that, that could be certainly a topic of discussion. That might be uh, where they um, where they focus on. Uh, and, uh, you know, with Janet Yellen now, a former Federal Reserve official, getting strong uh, confirmation by, um, uh, uh, from the Senate, uh, and moving into the Treasury slot, uh, there might be some talk about that. Uh, but certainly, and that's, you know, at least everyone's going to be on the same page. And, um, and, uh, and that, I think, will um, feed into their facilities, their lending, emergency lending facilities, which were being pulled back by the last administration and now will probably be extended. How much that good that does is another question because there's not a lot of demand for them, uh, whether from businesses or from um, individuals. So uh, another thing they could talk about is the increasing weakness in the labor market, and that has been evident this month by uh, large spikes in, in initial jobless claims. Um, and that is very unwanted. And the last report for December, the employment report, was in contraction for payroll. So it'll be interesting to see that it'll be next week, a week from Friday, what we see for expectations for the employment report. I don't think that they can be very positive. We had the consumer confidence report just a few minutes ago. This is Tuesday, and they have forward-looking indications of the consumer's assessment of the labor market, and it's a little worse than it was in December. So if that's your measure, then um, uh, the, the January 
report is going to show a little bit deeper contraction. Yet at the same time, there's a modest uh, rising expectations for what we can see six months ahead. The consumer expectations are, are not as high as business expectations for uh, the outlook, uh, but they are uh, improving a little bit. And you had the uh, the EFO, the German EFO, which uh, and what did you see there between the, the, the separation between now and and uh, in the future? Yeah, well, it's interesting at CFO because certainly in recent weeks, um, particularly really since it became apparent that we would be getting some, at least some kind of delivery of the, the COVID vaccine during the first quarter, we've seen the, the current assessment um, via the EFO survey of analysts indicating, or businesses, I should say, suggesting that they're becoming increasingly cautious about what was then a, a rising rate of infections, contrasting with general expectations, which were looking at the vaccine, thinking that, okay, it may not be great now, but it's going to be a lot better you know, further out as we get the vaccine actually being delivered more fully. However, in terms of uh, the latest report, you mentioned this is for January, we actually saw both measures, so current conditions and the expectations figures slipping a little bit, not hugely, but nonetheless, particularly for expectations, it's interesting to see now that it does seem that this, this ongoing tightening we're seeing pretty well right across Europe in terms of uh, COVID containment measures is starting to generally worry, I think, uh, businesses. And of course, at the same time, we've had news of prospective disruptions to the delivery schedule, both from Pfizer and from um, the Oxford University side as well, um, AstraZeneca. So I think yeah, some of the perhaps potential gloss looking further out, it's just dulled a little bit as businesses start to worry that, well, it may be the case that the lockdowns and, and really lockdowns in some shape or form really do cover most European countries now could last well, for that much longer. We'll talk about this morning's CBI distributive trades from the UK. That was a disaster, wasn't it? I mean, it does, is we've seen retail sales uh, fall off significantly in Europe, um, but now this report is for January, Is and this is in the UK. Is there a, a Brexit effect in there? Not really. I think this is to do really with the, the latest lockdown which came into effect So at, at the beginning of the new year. So, I mean, just in terms of the headline figures, we saw this, uh, the main, main, the main um, index for uh, the UK CBI distributive saves, uh, sales survey is looking at the, the balance of respondents who signal an increase in volume sales now versus a year ago. And this came in at minus 55%. And that's essentially the worst figure we've seen since the depth uh, of the slump in retail sales we saw um, immediately immediately after the start of the, the first virus wave. So on paper, at least, it really does suggest that sort of the bottom fell out of retail sales during January. If that is the case, then almost certainly it's simply be due to the fact that you know, the country is currently in lockdown and it's remain in lockdown for some indeterminate time at the moment. Um, so it's it's clearly hitting, hitting the UK demand badly. And that's going to be reflected, I guess, in some of the other data as well. I mean, in terms of the PMIs we had out for last week, for example, I mean, looking right across Europe, it is all pretty bad news. Um, bottom line for continental European growth, if you believe the PMI measures, um, it suggests that January GDP is going to be a negative. For the UK, though, it looks as if it could be significantly more so, and particularly in the services sector. And without going through you know, all the numbers, but the headline composite output index in the UK was all the way back down at just 40.6. So that's deep into recession territory. You're talking about January. Yeah, that was, 
This is January, yeah, the flash yeah, index, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and for services, I mean, it's 38.8. Now it's not as yeah, low as it ugly. after yeah. the first wave, but that was a, you know, that is however you want to slice it, uh, that is a lousy number. And of course, we have the Bank of England meeting coming up next week, and we'll, we'll talk more about that on next week's podcast. But you know, there's there's been this ongoing talk and speculation and murmurings about well look is the bank of england going to move negative to the rates negative bank? rates Correct. yeah <laughs> and this is the sort of thing which is going to fan the proverbial fire so i must say i don't think the market's made its mind up about this yet we had the uh, governor andrew bailey from the bank of england talking where i just a few days ago kind of intimating that he's not really sure if negative rates would do you know more good than harm so we're gonna have to wait and see on that one but it's certainly an interesting time in the uk well, you know, you, in your in in the distributive trades, you talk about current business rates holiday. What what are those and oh, extending those? Yeah, it's just that some of the business rates, which particularly the smaller companies have to pay, um, have been relaxed or or just put on hold. These are the time ta- these being. are tax rates. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, taxes mm-hmm. on business. Yes, so effective for actually having the business. Um, so it's really just allowing you know trying to give some members of the you know, the corporate sector a chance to keep alive because they're simply not getting the business in anymore. Mm-hmm. But honestly, in terms of look at looking at economic activity, you mentioned in the intro, we're going to get some GDP numbers out this week. Mm-hmm. Now, for Europe, I mean, OK, we'll get Germany on Friday where the market expectation appears to be flat. And to be honest, I think there's downside risk to that. But for France, and I should point out in terms of just going back to those PMIs quickly, Germany was the only country for which we have the data where the January Composite output index, so the, the GDP proxy, was actually above 50. Everywhere else was below 50. So, I mean, France now is expected on a quarter on quarter basis for GDP to be down the best part of 4%. So, Europe as a whole for the fourth quarter um, is looking pretty horrible. But your side actually probably got mm-hmm. half decent growth, didn't it? Well, it's expected to be. Well, there's less restrictions here. Um, the Econoday's consensus is for an annual um, rate of 4.1%. Of course, that's a, a small fraction of the 33.4 in the third quarter, but that was a, a bounce back from the contraction, severe contraction in the prior period. And with uh, personal consumption expenditures for the fourth quarter, which is consumer spending, is seen up 3%. But our data didn't fall off the edge of the table like yours did at the fourth quarter on the consumer side. So I think we're going to see that um, uh, that effect. I mean, but it's kind of academic because we're in a different world already in January. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, it, with the labor market, the, the one key weakness in the U.S. right now is the labor market. Um, and... Uh, that has yet to really uh, uh, it's not affecting business confidence at all or manufacturing it, it seems uh, uh, in the least really um, it is holding down the uh, service sector uh, but um, that is it, nothing like what we're actually seeing in contraction in labor so um, that's going to be a significant um, source of, of uh, concern for Janet Yellen and also Jerome Powell. So um, I think that those will, the uh, the employment status here will overshadow um, the GDP numbers if they're positive GDP numbers. 
All right, fair enough. No, it's interesting. There's some um, interesting comments coming out from Andy Haldane, who's the Bank of England's chief economist, who in so many words was effectively saying that you know the labour market now is what the Bank of England's looking at. You know, forget about the fact its remit is to hit a 2% inflation target. It's very much the labour market it's concentrating upon at the moment. And so really it's going to be you know, what happens there that's going to determine what the BOE is going to do with its policy. Um, on the policy front, I suppose I should mention a bit about the ECB from last week. So, I mean, I don't think it was a surprise to anyone that announced no changes to interest rates or indeed their quantitative easing programme. But what is becoming interesting, and again, this is also something we briefly touched on in last week's podcast, was what they're actually looking at. And from the way Christine Lagarde, the uh, central bank president, was talking, what is key to them is to be is to maintain uh, what they call positive financing conditions. Um, and yeah, the question from that becomes, well, OK, how do you want to measure positive financing conditions or even negative financing conditions? And it sounds as if um, there's going to be uh, these policymakers will be holding some kind of seminar at their next policy meeting. Uh, the announcement's on March the 11th. And they're going to be debating what kind of indicators should be including when assessing these financing conditions and indeed whether or not they should be looked at individually or kind of sort of synthesized into an index and indeed how they should be communicated. Now, that's one of the stories that Reuters was coming out with. And it it's quite interesting because Lagarde was very much plugging the fact that essentially if the central bank thinks it's maintaining favourable financing conditions, in other words, you know, banks and businesses can continue to access funds freely and at good rates uh, without any tightening of credit restrictions and such like, then it should be seen as doing what it can to ensure that the economy continues to recover. As I mentioned last week, we touched on the ECB's um, fourth quarter lending survey, which actually showed a tightening of credit conditions. And that appears to be one of the you know, the main um, components which is going to go into whatever kind of index it might ultimately come up with. So it's not so they're creating a an index or are they well, looking at existing yeah, indexes? They're looking, at, they're looking at the possibility of doing it, um, if we believe some of these reports coming out from news agencies. But certainly from the way they've been talking over the last several meetings now, it's been very much the focus of, you know, if we can keep these financing conditions favourable, then we are doing our bit to help to keep you know, the economy moving again. And the rest sort of falls down un under the umbrella of fiscal policy. So obviously, um, yeah, investors and speculators now want to know, well, OK, what should we be looking at? So it'll be interesting come March time as to whether or not they're actually going to provide any information you know, to, um, you know, to investors and everybody else as to specifically what kind of indicators they should be looking at. But it does kind of just you know, underline the fact that like with all central banks at the moment, it doesn't matter if you've got an inflation target or not. There are certainly at least other indicators, if not completely other indicators, that mm -hmm. um, your market operators should be looking at. And also, just going back, you were talking about you know, the Fed, about you know, the longer end of the market, what's going on with yields. There were also some rumours doing the rounds last week, which it sounds like the ECB weren't none too chuffed about, that the, uh, the central bank have been buying bonds explicitly to uh, limit uh, yield spreads between you know, the, the sort of southern countries, you know, the likes of Italy and Spain and Portugal versus Germany. And again, that could be seen as part of one of the um, the measures they might use when they're trying to judge financing conditions. I think mm -hmm. that's kind of a UCB tried to deny that. But mm -hmm. it's interesting that yeah, if quite often they will talk about you know, what's going on, looking at the spread between, say, typically the BTP out of Italy and the German Bundes to whether or not any financial stresses happening within the eurozone. So, so are they allowed to uh, specifically target uh, country bonds? Um, 
deliberately uh, support Greece or uh, as opposed to buying Germany? Well, it's, well, kind of, so the answer to that is, is kind of yes and no. If you look at the share of this, uh, you know, of the PEP, the emergency pandemic program, um, then it's certainly the case that if you look at if you look at per- current purchases under the PEP with a share of your know, national GDP, then we're talking what Italy, Cyprus, Greece, Spain, if I remember rightly, as being those countries which are disproportionately benefited out of uh, asset purchases under the PEP so far. Now, you might say that, well, that's just reflection of the fact that some of those countries were hit the hardest by COVID, so they need you know, that much more assistance. Or you might say, well, hang about all you're trying to do here is to make sure you keep the yield spreads down by buying more BTBs or you know or Spanish bonds, Spanish bonos than you are German bonds or something like that. So, but they can do that only up to a certain extent because the actual allocation um, of the PEP is laid down by what's called known as the capital key, and that's essentially mm. re- reflects size of GDP and population and says it right. You, know, you can buy so you know so many BTPs, you can buy so many German bonds, etc. But of course, it's flexible. And mm. the PEP itself has, yeah, really has much more flexibility than some of the other asset purchase programs, which means kind of to all intents and purposes, the ECB will do whatever it wants at any particular time. Is this what the German courts, this kind of thing that the German courts were worried about? Yeah, it is. And there's even even now when we saw the increase in the PEP coming through back in, was it December, wasn't it? Um, it was the talk then was that some German courts were making more no, more noises to affect the well, world. Should they be buying any more bonds anyway? Um, so yes, it's the kind of thing which certainly some German lawmakers are none too happy about. And and indeed, even even looking at the likes of the Bundesbank, obviously perhaps the most hawkish of the members of the uh, the governing council member, um, their head. Um, has made, yeah, well, effectively, I think he intimated that he wasn't particularly keen on the pet being hiked um, at the previous meeting. You know, they'd like to have seen it being, he'd like to have seen, seen it maintained at the mm-hmm. existing level. Mm-hmm. So it's the old age. Yeah. Uh, well, I just, I was just, uh, is there any questions of um, uh, all this stimulus of um, unsustainable uh, markets or anything like that in Europe? Is, is well, there concerns about that? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of you've got this background issue for I suppose a lot of countries now um, certainly within those countries which are extremely anti-inflation so the likes of Germany and Austria then when you're talking about trying to get ed through any kind of increase in the asset purchase program or, or, or the PEP um, the resistance tends to come from that angle because there is still this fundamental belief that well look if you keep expanding the balance sheet as quickly as you are money supply is going to go up far too quickly and at some point even if we don't know when it's going to start feeding through into inflation and we could perhaps have a you know, significant inflation problem further down the road mm-hmm. um, but I think you know, for a lot of the other central bankers it's more a case well you know people have been saying this for a long time we saw a big expansion of money supply after the global financial crisis and what happened to inflation well nothing really as far as the eurozone is concerned mm-hmm. and indeed it's been mm-hmm. below target for what, two going on for three mm-hmm. years now mm-hmm. well you know over here we had uh, house price indexes today in the u.s and they're just absolutely through the roof uh, um the FHFA is uh, 11% year over uh, year growth, uh, and that's a 30 year. That, that's they have 30 years of records, and that's the most ever. And um, the Case-Shiller data, they're at a six and a half year high with their rate, which is a three month average, uh, 9.1%. And the three month average implies that 
that that comparison between FHFA and Kay Schiller is that, you know, Kay Schiller is being held down by the prior months. Um, and we had permits and uh, starts last week. In the, and they're going, I mean, these graphs are just, uh, you know, uh, parabolic. And, uh, and the money is just flowing in there. And this is the you know, historically low interest rates and, uh, and um, a, a super heavy buying of mortgage-backed securities by the Fed. The Fed, tomorrow's press conference, uh, you know, he just, you know, constantly downplays it, whether it's the Beige Book uh, assessment of, of housing activity or uh, when they talk about housing activity or um, uh, Jerome Powell's comments on it. It's like it's. You know, they're they're trying to pretend it's not happening, but it's happening. And this is a risk. And this is, you know, the last time these are exceeding what we saw in the last bubble, the financial crisis, which can arguably be blamed on uh, a banking policy at that time, which was the subprime uh, uh, fiasco. And that led to a collapse in home prices and a collapse in financial institutions. So. Uh, uh, but it's not being talked about here, and neither is the Nasdaq's, you know, 45% gain and those, and that's or Bitcoin or all these other elements of which uh, can arguably be warning signs of excesses. I just wanted to get that out, Jeremy. I'm sorry. No, not at all. And it's interesting because I think yeah, a lot of investors are at least are looking at these things. But I suppose it's been going on for so long now. If you look, look at the equity market, that you know those you know, those would-be short sellers have been burnt so many times that they kind of just throw their hat into the ring and think, well, that's it. But it's interesting. You mentioned Bitcoin there because there's been a number of central banks who have been making noise to the fact that they're none too happy with the way Bitcoin's being um, you know, been developing over the last year or so. It's so hugely volatile. And of course, there's no proper regulation of it and that's what the big concern i think is for the, the central bankers and the ecb as we making noise is the fact that there really does need to be some form of regulation bank of england i think was it last week or the week before was making you know the same kind of commentary as well so it does seem that some of these kind of sort of you know off book um, cryptocurrencies are going to come under the cosh at some point um but you know actually introducing regulations could instill a massive amount of initial volatility because we could see mm-hmm. those currencies collapse first thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the whole problem you're talking about. You know, you've got a, a housing market boom, you know, a potential significant and dangerous bubble in house prices stateside. But were the likes of Mr. Powell to come out and start saying, well, look, I think these house prices are getting out of hand. Is that the straw that bakes the cram- camel's back and the whole thing collapses, equity markets, house prices, and it's last person to leave the world can't turn the lights out? Yeah. Uh, and that's it, of course, I think we talked about in the past, isn't it? How you actually manage to talk it's your way out yeah. Yeah, of, yeah. of what they're doing at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, talking, talking his way out, I suppose, um, we quickly mentioned in Europe, um, some of the politics, it wouldn't be a new year without um, a new Italian government. So today, the Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, tendered his resignation. Um, that was really, um, I suppose, a reflection of the fact the government's been struggling. since. Well, did, the, did Italian bonds do anything? Well, this is Italy, of course. So the good news for financial markets is that the only surprise is it's probably taken this long for the government to fall. Um, I mean, it could become important. And where we stand at the moment is, I mean, Conte, who's not actually a member of a 
political party anyway, he's a technocrat. Um, he resigned on the grounds that since one member of his, a minor member of his coalition party pulled out um, from the coalition, was it last week, he no longer has majority, an absolute majority in the upper house in the Senate, which meant it's near on impossible for him to get through, you know, some of the vital legislation which needs to be done now. There were some judicial reforms packages to be voted on, which he thought he'd probably lose. And if he lost that, he could be out. So what he's done is to step down, which means now that the president um, has to try to ask someone to form a new government. And what Conti is hoping is that the president will ask Conti himself to try and talk to other party members, whoever it may be, and form a new government and basically carry on. This is sort of classic Italian politics. So for most investors in Italy, when this sort of news first started, you know, speculation about it last week, yes, we did see Italian bombs being hit and we probably saw the, you know, the 10 year BTP. I think the yield probably went up so between five to 10 basis points, something like that. But since he's resigned, he's, it's, they've actually come back a little bit just in the expectation well they'll soon fudge another kind of coalition government and we're back to square one again but the, the problem is though here and just on a vaguely serious note is that the longer it takes to form a new government and it's never that easy doing it in Italy anyway you know the more the disruption is going to be to the vaccine delivery mm. and for a country like Italy which really needs it you know that's not going to be good news so um yeah uh, just just on that on that grounds alone, it, it can be seen as being yeah, it's 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 not positive for the eurozone economy in any way, shape, or form. Okay, what else should I be mentioning, if anything? Bank of Canada from last week and the BOJ from last week. We should mention uh, no change there, which didn't surprise anyone. One thing I would mention, I'll add to both of those, that the Bank of Canada, um, they do seem to be sounding a little bit more upbeat. And we talked about GDP out of uh, Europe and uh, America. Well, we'll get Canadian November GDP, so the monthly figures on this Friday. They're expected to be up 0.4% on a month again, which, if right, would mean that the fourth quarter is probably going to show a half decent increase and i suppose that you know just really underlines at least as far as the back end of last year is concerned how much uh, north america was really outperforming what was going on on my side of the pond and indeed it certainly got speculation you know doing the rounds now that it may not be too long before the bank of canada actually starts to taper its quantitative easing program which would be an interesting step for central banks generally right um that's me. Anything else from your side? No, I think uh, it's interesting, you know, that you were saying North America is not so well, but, you know, both the Canadian employment it's, uh, and U.S. employment have not have underperformed the labor market. So I wonder if that perform, that uh, comparative com, uh, outperformance has come at a price, which is the lower um, income group. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And I suppose, I mean, it's probably prattled on for too long, but in the UK labour market numbers this morning, uh, one of, I suppose, the standout elements was the fact we saw this big increase coming through in UK wages growth. I mean, uh, headline average earnings, which is the main index we look at here, that jumped from 2.8% up to 3.6%, which is the highest it's been in a very long time. But as you kind of alluded to, the key reason behind that really is the fact that so many of the lower paid jobs are no longer jobs anymore. So the whole average has been you know, steadily just you know, on a technical basis being pushed higher. So um, you know, high earnings growth in this instance is not a reflection of economic strength. It's more a reflection mm -hmm. of economic weakness. But I think to be fair to Canada, we did have a bad employment report, as, as you mentioned. But by and large, you know, the other numbers have actually held up pretty, pretty well. I mean, retail sales in November up 1.3%. 
Mm. Um, even the CPI is a bit stronger than expected. I mean, the, the economy is certainly slowing, but you know, the bottom line is nothing like as fast as we've seen coming out from over my side of the water. Okie dokie. Well, I guess then that's it for us today. It's not really a great time for the global economy at the moment, but to finish on a slightly brighter note, the new IMF World Economic Outlook, which was released what, just a couple of hours ago, has at least revised up its 2021 growth forecast from October's 5.2% to 5.5%. However, how much you want to trust that, of course, is, is completely down to yourselves. <laughs> on behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as ever for listening. We'll be back next week with Brian Jackson, who will be updating us on what's going on in Asia. And in the meantime, as I'm sure you know by now, you can keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in the Day's global economic calendar. Bye for now. <laughs>